son. Where'd you find this? Let the bass kick. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the line from the land where kangaroos will just randomly assault you and challenge you to a boxing match, Australia. Amy Therese. Amy Therese, how are you doing? Have you been assaulted by any kangaroos lately? No, it's consensual, sir. So. Oh, so it, it was... Hi, uh, it was <laughs> how was that for an intro? Do you feel I like that was an accurate consent. representation of your day-to-day life in uh, in Australia? Well, I mean, when I'm not um, getting consensually involved with kangaroos, I'm just um, trying to avoid drop bears. <laughs> quite a challenging task. And massive snakes. Massive snakes. I don't mind the occasional snakes. So let me just, let me ask you a question, right? So (laughs) if you encounter a kangaroo on the street, like you're walking to the bus or whatever, to the train and, you know, in in Sydney and and all of a sudden, you know, you turn a dark alleyway and there's a fucking kangaroo, uh, just this menacing guy. And he's he's probably after your wallet because you know how those kangaroos are, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, We don't tolerate any kind of, uh, you know. We don't tolerate bigotry on this show, but I don't know, man. That anti-kangaroo bias, it's kind of justified. Let me let me ask you a question. What's your first defensive move? How do you how do you approach that kangaroo? Like what's what's your go-to like what do you do? What's your defensive oh, posture? As as a good and true strain, um I carry yeah. a knife with me. And a knife. I turn it in- That's not a knife. This is a knife. So you walk up to the kangaroo. Yeah, you walk up to the kangaroo naturally, and you have to beat the kangaroo to the punch because he's going to say that too. But you have to say it before he says it because he's no, going to look at you he and he's going to go, you call he that a knife. And then I say, yeah, I do. And you're fucking hamburger <laughs> meat, mate. And oh, also, so you, you wait for him. You wait for him to say, you call that a knife. And then you respond. And then I say, and yes, one bitch, up and I stab him straight in the guts. Oh, and then there we are. Man. That's tonight's dinner. Yeah, that's you know what? That's why you're the Australian and I'm not because well, that's see, genius. I know you're someone who frequents the gym, and as somebody whose ex-boyfriend was mad into that shit, um, do you know kangaroo meat is very lean and very high in protein? That doesn't surprise me. It's it's because you know they're very they're a uh, uh, very athletic. Uh, yeah, you know, totally species. athletic. They, they can jump high and stuff, so they're going to have like muscular. lean. Also, but I bet it's probably very to tough. Drive, you would have to like marinate it. For it is a long quite time. tough, and so yeah. no. Well, there's that, but the other thing to do is you can get the um, mints from Woolworths, which is like a, one of our main supermarkets. They sell yeah. kangaroo mints, and it's much cheaper than beef, and it's much leaner, much higher in protein. Wow. And if you just saute it lightly, it works perfectly in like. Um, burritos or does it taste um, like chicken or is it more like a red meat? No, like a, like beef? it's a red. It's very much a red meat. Okay, so like I've eaten. I, I, it reminds me of alligator actually. Kind so we of have like you know, venison. You can, 
Have you yeah, tried venison? venison? Is it gamey? Yeah, very much. So. Is it gamey? Yeah, it's like gamey. Venison? Yeah, 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 it's yeah, a bit gamey like so. that. I would imagine. So we eat alligator here and it's very lean and it's kind of tough, but if you cook it just right, it's very good. But that tastes like chicken to me. I bet the kangaroo tastes like beef then or like venison. Tastes like chicken. Yeah, like deer meat. Like we, we, we hillbillies call it deer meat, by the way. It's not venison. I don't know what that is. I believe like you call it roadkill. Um, also I, um, I hit a kangaroo once in my vehicle. Did it hit back? I feel like he walked over to his, like his, he he went home that day and he hit the bar and he was like, he was like, got into a car accident, mate. And he's like, you should see the other guy. Like, you know, like, God, I don't know what that Pretty accident much. was. No, here's what happened. <laughs> did he like, did he like limp away? Like and, and flip you the bird? Motherf- like on the way pulled out? Pulled a motherfucking number on my vehicle. <laughs> and just then just like bounced off. Just fucking hopped away like nothing happened. Yeah. He just brushed his shoulder off. Was, and he was, like, was like, he like, was like, learn how to drive. Come on. You know, like. Pretty- too much. I used to drive a Toyota Yaris, and it completely <laughs> fucked the entire front oh, of the I car. Bet. I bet that. Yeah. I bet it just wrecked that little tiny box. And my box, sister's in the passenger seat. I'm like super chill in emergencies. It's like the one random skill that I have. I'm just like calm as fuck. I think it's yeah. the ADD thing. Like I get it's adrenaline, totally the and then I just chemistry. calm down. Yeah, you're in the and zone my sister when you're, was. When you're all yeah, yeah. Up. Like when the yeah. adrenaline's running, I'm just like totally cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> yeah. My sister was shitting the bed, like, and she was like, <laughs> "The fact that I was so calm was making her even more mad." Yeah, because like, she, she, she was getting you're not angry that I was. Well, what the fuck am I supposed to do in the middle yeah, of yeah. butt fuck nowhere? I've hit a kangaroo. The kangaroos run off. I'm fine. He like, might come back with friends. He well, might I mean, go get his friends and come back for revenge. Yeah, I mean, you know? I mean what? Like know. one hits like a gateway man. drug. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, right. the point being. <laughs> the so point being is you're I from Australia. Good, and I talked a good weird. game. Pun. <laughs> game. Yeah. But, yeah I um, see what you did But there. really, like the kangaroos are fucking wrecking my vehicle, not the other way around. Let's face yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. We, well, we're, we're five minutes in. We've given uh, the listeners some really great advice about what to do if they're, um, you know, accosted by a kangaroo in an in a, in a inner city environment when you're alone. Um, and you've learned about uh, what give you not to do. Cole while you're, yeah, yeah. Cold pole. That's not a knife. Anyway, we got a really great this show for knife. all of you. <laughs> I'm trying to reel it in here. We got a really great show for you guys. Uh, we got Laura Bucci on the program. She's an assistant professor at St. Joseph's University. She uh, teaches political science, researches political behavior, organized labor, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, in the wake of the Janus decision that just dropped this morning in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you know, talking about labor unions and why they are so important in society is, is you know, I mean, it's more crucial now than ever. So we brought Laura on to talk about the so-called white working class, the way that it does and doesn't function in politics, and then uh, the role of you know the economic demands and the, the and the way that uh, organized labor is an essential aspect of bringing ab- about uh, you know justice and 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 ending exploitation, even ending oppression. Um, just you know signaling forward. It's one of my favorite lines of, of Adolph Reed Jr.'s, which is to say that you know he always asks you know do you know the organization that represents the most. Uh, people of color in the country. And, you know, people always say like, oh, I don't know, in, in WACP, the NAACP. Is it, yeah, is it, is it maybe care, you know, maybe care no, or something like that. No, it's, no. it's the AFL CIO people. And like, you know, so you can't, you can't divorce, um, you know, anti-racism with, with, uh, you know, labor and, and uh, anti-bigotry, all of these, all of these, you know, discriminatory frameworks come from, you know, the power of, 
of organized labor. And so Laura Bucci is going to break that down for us. It was a really fun, fun interview, I think, in a lot of ways. But that Janice case, I mean, we, we all sort of knew that was coming. Um, the spinelessness of Obama, um, his inability uh, to have Garland Merritt, uh, you know, um, installed Merit into the Garland. Supreme Court. Sorry, Merritt Garland. I got it backwards. <laughs> Merritt Garland. Uh, see, like his name will be forgotten, right? And uh, Gorsuch will go down in history as being the bastard who, who was deciding votes on some of the worst rulings in the history of the court. Uh, but that's what happens when you have a spineless Democratic president uh, at the helm for eight uh, if years. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I don't actually think he participated in the Janus ruling. No, it's it's five four. He had to have because previously oh, for the Friedrich, my mistake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my yeah. Mistake. No, you're thinking for the Friedrichs. Yeah, you're right. Friedrichs didn't pass because it was four four. Right, um, because um, fat motherfucker died. Gotcha. Yeah, Antonin yeah. Scalia uh, hit croaked. He he kicked my the boy. bucket. Which should have been a golden opportunity for the Democrats. And of course, they squandered it. So let's talk about Janice, what it does. Um, you know, others are going to be able to break this down. There's going to be a lot of uh, hot takes and, and more well-digested takes about this in the coming days. But uh, Janice versus Ask Me uh, essentially means that the entire U.S. public sector will now be right to work. Um, so welcome, welcome aboard. I'm from the great state of Virginia. <laughs> And uh, all I can say to the rest of you, I don't know, there were like, what, 11 or 12 right to work states previously. So to the uh, to the rest of you, like 38 or there so states who are now joining the fold of right to work. Welcome aboard, folks. It's uh, the weather's shitty and the union climate is terrible. Uh, But I think now, like we we need to rethink the way that we, uh, you know, we approach these issues. We can't rely on these kind of bureaucratic backroom, like, you know, lawyered up strategies to 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 save hey, us we're hey, going hey, to need to hey hey yeah hey, i'm hey. not hating on lawyers i'm just saying like hey, bitch, i got a career to look forward to <laughs> you gotta uh, fucking you, remind people that i'm not gonna be their lord and savior i, I mean, will you're be your lord and savior <laughs> she was she's here to save the day people no that's that's a grift one of your potential grifts was just foreclosed on so you know you're gonna have to find a different grift to run with um but anyway, the strike is going to become the You're strike is going to be become on the so other much side. more important. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be the one like finding them by the Union Busters. You're just here. You're just here yeah. to learn the way that the left does its business, so that you can uh, so that you can uh, Your undermine us close in a future and career. Enemies even closer. Well, that's very wise. Anyway. So yeah, Janice change changes the the landscape uh, politically and uh, you know legally for 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 quite some time. And uh, but this is what happens when you have a spineless Democratic mainstream, uh, Democratic Party mainstream that refuses to play ball uh, when the other side will do anything and everything in its power to to, uh, you know, to gain dominance in, in the political sphere. So yeah, this this episode, we didn't plan on having this episode uh, because of Janice. It was recorded uh, well in advance of the ruling. Um, but I think it's as timely as ever. <laughs> Uh, socialists need to have <laughs> well, answers well to in, these questions. Well in, ad- well in advance, says Adam. Well in advance. Several days. I'm, I'm not prone <laughs> to hyperbole ever. I'm always... <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole. What are you going to do? Uh, we, we, we've, we taped this interview a couple of days in advance of the Janus ruling, but we, we, we truly didn't have it in mind. But I think it's as timely as ever. And uh, we, we open up talking about the so-called white working class and uh, and why that's garbage, and why Joe the plumber is not 
uh, you know, an, a leader or an avatar even of the white working class. So it was a fun interview. We'll, we'll get to that. We've, what's that? He's welcome to fix my sink. <laughs> no, fuck him. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even hire him to, to, to shove his arm down my toilet if it was clogged. Um, that guy. I believe anyway. that's what plungers are for, bro. Yeah. Stick to your dusty know. books. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I couldn't <laughs> clog a toilet if you paid me. Anyway, we've we've talked about kangaroos. We've talked about Janice and the so-called white working class. We've signposted well enough. So uh, we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna push the Patreon on you folks just for a very quick moment. We're doing a bit of a summer fun drive, if you will. So hit up that Patreon. It's patreon.com slash dead pundits. And you'll have access to the late show that we do almost every week. Amy and I are going to be late, doing the B-side. The late, late show. Uh, and where we're going to be chopping it up and talking about more practical political matters and uh, yucking it up without a guest. The Lights Out After Dark show. Lights Out After Dark. Where the hot takes are the extra do- hot. The adults, the adults only show. Yeah, you got to put the kids to bed. And uh, listen to us chopping up. We save. We really do, though. We save our spiciest hot takes for the patrons, uh, not because we're cowards, but because we know that they have the background and the buy-in to be able to really handle what we're saying without imputing other, you know, other just really disingenuous, you know, aims or whatever. The way that people sort of like project things on you. you can, we can we can aims? really be ourselves. What yeah, about me? Aim. What aims? Aims. Hello, aims. Is that what they call you down under? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> That's adorable. My name is at least five letters, so that's, that's adorable. Too many. You got to shorten everything. What would they call me yep. down there? Ads, adsy, ads. Oh, that's Ad-Z. so that's so cheesy. It's repugnant. That's I agree. So cheesy. I only think about like Margot uh, Robbie like saying that and like. You oh, know, like, I heard you pause, but you got it. Be right. like Addie, come you to bed. You were totally about to say Roby. <laughs> I was because that's how she says it. I Mad can't help skills. it. If if Margot was like, if Margot was like Addie. Ads, come to bed, come to bed. I'd be like, oh, obviously, I'll be right there, you, you know? idiot. Obviously. Uh, in my dreams, when Margot calls me to bed at the end of a long day, strenuous day. Yeah, I know? feel like you're already in bed fast asleep when you start hearing Margot Robbie's <laughs> <laughs> Busted. You caught me. Yeah, that wasn't real. That, that wasn't that. That was not a thing that happened. All right. So, um, Patreon. Yeah. Hit yeah, it tell, up. Tell, tell the listeners why, why they should join the Patreon and why it's so important to support the New Left Agenda. Because I'm like a high maintenance bitch, and there's two of us now, and so not bit in all seriousness, like we've had to set up um like a mic. Oh, speaking of microphones, yeah, she has a new I don't mic. Know if people. people can tell, I have a new. Does she mic. sound great? Yeah. Do I sound great? You um, sound different. I'll tell you what, I don't have to process yeah. the hell out of your voice the way that I used to. So if people can't tell the difference, that's only because I had to spend like seven hours a week like processing her audio. So I don't have to do that anymore. And we we can thank the patrons for that. We bought an entire new mic set up and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. So thanks again to the patrons for supporting us. And if you're not a patron on the outside looking in, now is as good a time as ever. If, if you're running short on cash or you're already a patron, the one thing that we really do need you to do is press that share button, uh, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, email, at a family reunion. I don't care. Like Tell everyone that you can about Dead Pundit Society. Uh, we love the support that we get. I appreciate the messages, uh, the DMs. People slide into my DMs all the time to tell me how much they love the show. I really do appreciate that. Uh, it, it really means a lot because we put a lot of work and effort into this thing. And sometimes you feel oh. like you're shouting into the void, right? You are, Adam. But yeah, people well, are hearing yeah, I mean, on the I other am. side of the void. <laughs> That's true. Also, um, write and review us. So, um, 
it helps um it helps us rise in like the it helps people find us on iTunes. So give us a rating right. and a review. Do that. Yeah. Do it. We have Do we it. have t- t- much Do to my surprise, it. we have quite a bit of reviews actually. We have like 70 plus reviews and I've never asked anyone to what? do that ever as far as I can remember. Um but very few people leave comments. Okay. They'll just sort of Well, like I'm shamelessly I'm yeah. shamelessly. Give us five stars. Leave a nice comment. I'm just like soliciting um, right now. Soliciting reviews. Tell Amy how great her voice sounds and her new microphone. That kind of thing. So anyway. All right. Or we've gone long enough. Just tell me how great enough. I am generally. I just in general. Just uh, just jerk our chains. <laughs> Everywhere. All the time. Any, 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 any way that you Heaps can. Heaps of jerking. So, Heaps of jerking. All right, we've gone entirely too long in this intro. These it's people true. don't want to it's hear true. us yap around. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a member today. Get access to the B-sides and all the back catalog. Share us. Share, share, share on Twitter, Facebook, and all the other platforms. We really do need the listens. Man, the podcasting, I, I love the fact that there's so many left-wing podcasts out there, but damn it if the if the market is not getting super, super crowded and people only have but so many hours in the day. So we really do need to push them in the right direction. And I think Dead Pundits is a pretty damn good direction. So share us and tell your friends. Without further ado, we're going to bring you our interview with Laura Bucci and Amy and I will chop it up after that interview and talk a little bit more about Janice and all the rest of it. Enjoy. Joining us on the line today is Laura Bucci. Laura is an assistant professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. She studies political behavior, organized labor, among many other things. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've written recently on some incredibly uh, topical topics, you might say, uh, in the academic universe and the uh, political sphere as well. Ever since 2016, you know, this this object of the white working class has been a hot button issue, but both in the mainstream media and in academic and left and right circles alike. We've seen uh, the likes of uh, J.D. Vance writing about hillbilly elegies and all the rest of it. Um, and there's been a lot of hot air and, and very little scholarly insight until very recently on the topic. And, and, and you represent a, a field of scholars producing some really important empirical work about just what the nature of the white, this so-called white working class really is and how it functions in politics. So how did you come to study the, the so-called white working class? And what was the sort of political moment that led you in that direction? Because clearly that was far prior to uh, you know, the Trump's election in 2016. Yeah, so I, I lucked out and it was kind of a fortuitous topic selection for me. I went to grad school to study. Um, I wanted to study what happens to people when state policies change. And so my first year of graduate school, Wisconsin happened. Um, and the protests that followed Wisconsin happened, right. uh, which led to to bigger questions of changing landscape of labor and and what happens as unions decline in states. And so the white working class in some ways follows out of that. In other ways, I'm just interested in studying class more generally and studying working people sort of as a subgroup of interest in political science. Mm-hmm. So tell us exactly what, what I mean, we say Wisconsin happened and we're all sort of nodding along knowingly, but I don't want to presume any knowledge going into this. First of all, that was 2011. And, and I would venture to say 75% of the people listening to the show were not active less leftists in 2011, which is, I think, a great thing. Uh, there are a lot of newbies who have come in since then. 
or either they've aged in and they were maybe small children in 2011, <laughs> which is also great that they're not with us um, at a younger age. But uh, tell us what Wisconsin really represented and what that moment, sort of what, what the stakes were uh, involved in that moment. Sure. At the point where I got in, um, got interested, then the governor, Scott Walker, passed what would be a collective bargaining limitation for public sector workers within the state's budget bill. And so that was seen as a, an attack on public sector workers in the state. And there were a series of protests that followed. But those types of laws took place kind of in, in capitals throughout the Midwest. Mm-hmm. They were later followed by a wave of right-to-work laws that also passed in states somewhat contentiously. So I was in Indiana at the time. Um, Indiana had, had similar types of, of legislation happening, but Ohio did as well, um, Michigan a few other places. Mm-hmm. So when we say right to work, let's let's spell that out as well for our international audience, and also just for the general audience, uh, you know, who might be tuning in, who's less familiar about labor law and the history there. So my understanding of that that's the first wave of so-called right to work laws uh, were sort of enabled in 1947. My own home state of Virginia went that direction, went right to work like very early on, along with what I think seven or eight other states. And then yeah. others have trickled in ever since to sort of outline that history for us. The first one of, was Florida, um, okay. I believe. And then um, a few other states followed soon after that. And then it was pretty much dormant until Oklahoma was in, I believe, 2002 or maybe 2000. And so that was the next wave, but but 30 years had passed in between without much happening. What right to work does is it enables employers to monitor unionizing processes in ways that tend to lead to lower union membership and tends to lead to more free riding. Um, Right, right, right. So it turns it sort of turns the employment contract into this individual, highly uh, hyper individualized sort of um, agreement between the employer and the employee. And it doesn't allow for the kind of uh, collective intervention of, of, of trade unions in the private sector. Correct. Um, and it, I mean, and because unions function the way they do, they their contracts apply to all workers. And so allowing individual members to opt out more regularly means that uh, unions themselves need to organize people that don't necessarily want to be in ways that are expensive. Right. So it it produces a resource drain. People aren't paying dues and yet the union is uh, legally obligated to, to sort of, uh, to cover them and and advocate for them in, in certain ways. And we're seeing this sort of be upended in a variety of ways. Um, the Friedrichs ruling that were saved, uh, by, the uh, fortuitous death of our friend <laughs> and pal um, Antonin Scalia, but but yeah. Anyway, this, I just want to sort of want to outline that for people before going forward, uh, before we sort of uh, assume that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, a similar thing is going to happen with Janice, so we'll see what the ruling is in that case, but in the public sector. It's really fascinating that a lot of the Republican governors who are so keen to institute right to work laws are pretty keen to memorialize Martin Luther King whenever his national holiday comes around. They've kind of disnified him. But um, earlier this year, I was going through some of his older speeches and he was like absolutely virulent in his opposition towards right to work. So it's kind of interesting yeah. the ways in which these things change over time. And yet the people instituting them have managed to kind of sanitize some of the strongest forces against the um, 
against the laws that are basically not in the workers' interests and the workers themselves are no longer particularly familiar with. And I think there's, I mean, there's something that comes out of how these laws were created in the first place. And a lot of them captured animus, some somewhat of workers, but, but mostly not towards minority populations. Um, so a lot of this really, the, the beginnings of right to work really capitalized on a lot of sentiments that were already there. I mean, the states where these laws passed had already um, limited the occupations of African-American workers and whether or not they could unionize in the first place. But that's coming prior to right to work. So a lot of this is tied up together in a, a sort of a neat package of race and class. Right. So they sort of did what they could to alienate as many groups that they like to alienate minority groups outside of union options to begin with. But then there Correct. was kind of added propaganda, to, for lack of a better term, that would sort of weaponize some of those inchoate sentiments amongst those who were able to unionize. Is that mm-hmm. about right? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, we're really getting into sort of uh, much deeper uh, territory, I think, than, <laughs> uh, than, the, than the contemporary. No, not at all. I mean, I think that, but this is really, it's important. And I think, you know, um, just to sort of signpost, I think, um, you know, we're going to return to this uh, in the course of coming weeks, talking about how there's a certain kind of, uh, I don't want to say, I just call it a path dependency of, of sorts. Laura, I'm sure you can quibble with that, uh, you know, more technically <laughs> speaking, but we'll just call it a sort of path dependency in terms of how uh, labor markets are, are segmented and stratified and segregated coming out of slavery because right. we live in the United States where we kept people in chains and then we, quote, freed them and had to do something, you know, give them economic prospects. And there have there have been segmented and discriminated, discriminatory labor markets ever since. And we're still sort of dealing with those legacies. And I think, you know, what, what, what Laura is sort of pointing to there is the way in which those legacies sort of unfolded, produced a certain kind of like unevenness across the labor force that was readily exploitable by, by racists and yeah. dog whistles. And it, it varies geographically, and that is not by coincidence. Yeah, you um, see where these states, uh, at least up until recently, where the states uh, were, were moving to right to work, it, it maps on to, to the Confederacy, for God's sakes. Uh, so no, no mystery there about what's at stake. But anyway, what, what, what you write about is a little bit less of a, a just-so story than that. Uh, yeah. Because what you what you found uh, in in your work on the so called white working class is there's just been, there's been this vast confusion, this sort of shakeup of aims and interests and 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 uh, feelings and impulses that are driving people's politics that kind of undermine these just so narratives when we talk about uh, the so called determinacy of the white working class. First things first, who did you find to be the white working class, and how does this conflict with some of the dominant, uh, you know, conceptualizations of that of that uh, that that group? The issue that we have when we're defining the white working class is that a lot of people throw that term out as though it has an inherent meaning, and in that that it doesn't need to be um, the way we're operationalizing what that is is going to be different. Um, so if we choose to think of class as some sort of function of income and education, or we choose to, to separate out people who have a college degree and those who don't, or we choose to separate out people who own their own businesses versus working for a wage, all of those produce different people. Um, and so the issue is that as we define the white working class differently, 
we end up with different groups. Um, and so the big split in 2016 that people are finding is between those without a college degree and those with. And some of the work, not my own work, but other people's work looking at that has found that that's the, the biggest differential between people, um, between who voted for which candidate mm-hmm. since the 80s. And so it was an important understanding of how um, behavior was different across groups of people. But that maybe is not the best definition of who, what it means to be working class, right? Education is not necessarily the best measure of, of class. And so then there's the question of if people, we know that voters tend to be higher income than non-voters. And if people who don't have a college degree but work in a field in which um, they are paid better, so say they own their own business, they own their mm-hmm. own store or they own their own uh, company or they're an electrician or a plumber or whatever, they maybe have more money and we're more likely to vote as Republicans anyway. And so there's a, there's a question there about how we're measuring class and how that leads to who we believe is, should vote one way or another way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this, we can take this all the way back to the Joe, the plumber, uh, sort of narrative, right? The Joe plumber represents a sort of authentic white working class, a bootstrapping kind of do-it-yourselfer mentality, and 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 that was sort of revealed to be somewhat a fraud, right? Because Joe the plumber had a six-figure salary, he owned a small business, he had employees, and he had a lot of interests that aligned with the pro-business agenda of the Republican Party. So we talk about how Donald Trump was ushered into power by the so-called white working class. Uh, you know, we talk about different voting segments and percentages and all the rest of it. But your research, uh, the way that you sort of crunch the data and, and, and read others who do, tells a different story. Uh, who, who was it that actually voted for Trump and, and, and um, who was sort of left out of that, that bunch? That, well, that sort I think of there's a, a question data. about how income groups vote generally, right? So if people drop out of the electorate, then they couldn't vote for Trump at all. But they're, they're kind of in that the denominator of the fraction changed, right? That when turnout shifts – we don't necessarily know the composition of the people who didn't vote um, and who could have, right? That's a bit more complicated of a question. Understanding who the white working class was, maybe in this election, is maybe different than the, the working class more generally, which we know is more diverse, mm-hmm. which we mm-hmm. know is um, is not primarily made up of white people. And so then thinking about voting patterns becomes a bit more complicated. So one, it changes as we think of who votes versus who doesn't. And then it changes based on what we consider to be working class. So how does this framing of, you know, when you study empirical sort of data and you're looking at uh, statistical evidence and so on and so forth, like what you go into this inchoate pool of numbers and figures, (laughs) what you go into that pool looking for matters a great deal. Yeah. Right. So if you go right, if you if you go into a data set and you're looking for uh, data along, say, racial lines, well, you're likely to find enough, um, you know, uh, ev- quote unquote evidence to back up whichever view you, you'd like to go for. H- how do you think the way that we break up populations and classify populations in, in political science and sociology and other types of, uh, you know, uh, social scientific inquiry? How do you think that impacts the the results that we find, because it seems to me that these kind of like a uh, centralized uh, notions of uh, along sort of race, racial and gender and, and other kinds of, uh, you know, lines 
don't really do the work that 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 we need them to do in order to explain why people uh, vote and, and react the way they do in these uh, sort of broad. Well, political- I mean, I think so. When you go into data sets, you can't find every pattern that you want, right? That's not that's not. Um, Certain patterns are more relevant in the data. Sure, uh, sure. Scholars in general tend to be fairly careful. But I think there is always this question of how we think about concepts and how we measure them mm-hmm. and whether or not they're relevant for the populations we're measuring um, in understanding their behavior. Right? And so a lot of this is going to be imperfect. Uh, and we know that. We expect some degree of error going in. But when we're talking about concepts like class – they're more amorphous and they're less easily identifiable from survey questions, right? Mm -hmm. We're not asking people, well, some surveys do uh, about, about class, but people in the United States specifically, almost everyone thinks they're middle class. So it's a question of, you know, 80% of people think they belong to the middle class, then that's not a particularly useful separation because some of those people made, you know, $200,000 last year and some of them made $12,000 last year um, and they're behaving very differently. Um, And so what ends up happening is that people use um, items that that in general you tend to know. So you use income, you use education, you may use occupation, but fewer people do that. And you kind of tend to to understand their preferences that way. Um, But the question there, and this has been a debate in political science, is whether or not you look at behavior based on income or based on education or some combination of the two. Something that I just really stands as a significant point of contrast between the states and Australia is, um, you know, the old aphorism that so many Americans seems to think seem to think they're um, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Um, yes, something that's particularly fascinating to me is. The idea that certainly, at least until Trump's campaign, you never heard even the term working class come out of a candidate's mouth. It was as though Mm -hmm. there was the middle class and that was it, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that's really fascinating, like in terms of the type of work you're doing and then also in terms of like the challenges with defining this idea of the working class, particularly in light of the fact that like the vast majority of Americans don't acknowledge themselves as being in one and candidates don't tend to <laughs> to cite that notion when they're campaigning either whereas in Australia and I think this may have something to do with us having a labor party candidates will refer to both the working and middle class and there's right. a pretty su- like substantive understanding of the of the differential between the two and there's I mean there's work to to show that Americans don't we don't under, we don't talk about income very often at all um, and we also don't understand how, how much people make relative to each other, right? So we have right. um, we we misestimate that all of the time. Um, yeah. And so groups that we would put in the working class elsewhere are middle class here. That's yeah. That's the thing that I find particularly galling. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's no if there's no low, then there's the middle is. The middle's too big, right? <laughs> They're not yeah. evenly it divided anyway. Meaning, yeah, it becomes meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, in terms of how sort of organized labor sort of dropped out of the scene here and what some of the implications are on that, not only in inequality, which we'll return to in the second half of the interview, I, I suppose, uh, but more more immediately now in terms of people's opinions and, and their own sort of uh, about their how that reflects on their own worldview. You discover here that many people who are interviewed in the literature don't have a universally positive opinion about labor unions. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me a little bit about and speculate for us why, why that might be the case when, you know, labor unions have historically been the sort of bedrock of, of, you know, political representation and, and, and notions of belonging to community and, and, and others among the working class and so on. As we think about what organized labor does, um, and we need to also consider uh, their their kind of uneven decline across industry. And mm-hmm. so a lot of that, um, there were a lot of good things. There are a lot of good things that organized labor does for working people. But as they declined in states unevenly, people in some ways felt as though they were left behind, um, that, that kind of the lifestyle that they had been promised or the lifestyle that they had expected to have went away. In some ways, um, some people saw it as a, that their union had turned their back on them, that they had prioritized other groups of people, that they they weren't able to lead themselves in a way that was successful and that could help them. And so there's a lot of kind of not anger, but disappointment sort of coming out of that. And right, so it's right. this it's this moment of uneven decline across states. And then there's um, there's active opinion formation. Um, so individuals in general tend to have fairly favorable opinions towards organized labor, right? So in my work, I find that um, across the states that overall opinion tends to be positive, if not somewhat neutral, right? It's not negative. It has grown apart by partisanship. Um, And so over time, we see partisans, um, Democrats or Republicans, sorting into the the correct, the so-called correct position for their party, Right. So if Democrats are the party of organized labor, right, they're the closest we have to a labor party in the U.S. case, then more Democrats are growing slightly more favorable, but they're not growing as favorable as de- as Republicans are growing unfavorable. OK, right. um, but still, if you if you look across, you see um, generally overall positive opinion. It's just changing slightly over time, but not very rapidly. One of the things I speculated about off air prior to starting the interview was that, um, you know, when, when, when the research, you know, finds this is sort of an anecdotal observation on my part here, but when the research finds that, uh, you know, people generally across the board are, have unfavorable opinions of labor unions, um, to me that that's not news. Um, I study labor history among many other things. And, and one of the things that you find is that even going back to the new deal and post-war era, when, when union density was at its highest, um, it's a, you know, unions were their strongest politically and numerically in society. You often found at the local level, you often found a, a great deal of antipathy towards the national level of the of the of the union, right? Whereas people's um, sort of strong, you know, affective ties were at the locals. You know, the, the union locals 
mm-hmm. where it was at, right? You know, th- that's where your comrades were, your coworkers, your neighbors, uh, you know, your colleagues, and, and that's where your loyalty and your affinity lied. And oftentimes, you know, those damn, you know, bureaucrats up at national are always, always trying to thwart us and, and, you know, uh, cozy up to the bosses. Right. Yeah. And so it seems to me that it, it's really this data, you know, can be, can be read incorrectly if it, if it's not sort of read alongside labor history. Right. And so far as people's, you know, I, I do wonder, I do wonder what's not being captured there when we say sure. that people's, you know, feelings about unions are, are, aren't great. Um, is this more of a manifestation of the way in which people don't belong to locals any longer? So they don't have a more kind of a nuanced view of labor in the way that they used to, or, um, you know, I mean, I'm sort of yeah. asking you to sort of speculate here, but I think, I think it's an, it's an, it's an, it's an interesting question uh, for me, at least. I mean, they're somewhat divorced from the benefits that organized labor provide because they're mm-hmm. not, they're not in locals anymore. Um, and so you like things best when they are providing a direct benefit to you and you can see <laughs> right. it happening. But even, even when, when union membership was quite a bit stronger, you see the, um, the issue that people in organizations, even organizations that they like very much find problems, right? That they, you know, they, mm-hmm. they wish certain things were better. They wish things, you know, worked more efficiently. They think that so-and-so and so is wasting whatever resources they have, um, even though it's a very good organization and they very much want to be a part of it. Um, and so complaints, especially in public opinion, there's a lot of what we'd call noise in that data, right? So the overall trend is fairly positive, but occasionally you'll have these blips where people are are more antagonistic, are um, voice concerns about things that are not necessarily um, something that they hold really close to their heart. They're angry about it right now, but they're you know they're overall positive. If you ask them again in you know a couple of days, they'd change their opinion. Um, and so we tend to look at long time over time trends um, and try to look more generally at sort of averages along the way, which is going to miss a lot of important variation, but it's a little bit safer than um, taking every every opinion as it's expressed along the way as though it's um, the only opinion that that person will ever have. Right. So talking about the intersection of race and class is just inevitable and unavoidable when we're talking about the so-called white working class. Um, you know, one of the ways that it's conceptualized, uh, you know, at least in the liberal media is, uh, this, this really jingoist, uh, anti-immigrant, uh, extremely overtly racist kind of, uh, grouping of people largely in the rural America and the South. And we need to, uh, therefore, um, we need to divest from these people. Uh, there are a couple people, I think it was Richard Florida, uh, sort of urban, uh, scholar, uh, of urban studies sort of <laughs> suggested, I think, I believe it might've been in, in, in the Atlantic, uh, in early 2017, that we uh, we the blue states secede from the red states, or something along those lines, right? And so there's been a way that we we've really uh, hunkered down in the culture wars. Now that's not to deny that there is a great deal of resentment that manifests itself um, in terms of uh, racial and and you know xenophobic uh, tendencies. There's no question there. Um, however, your research d- d- sort of develops a more kind of complex, nuanced view of how people's opinions towards uh, racial minorities and ethnic minorities sort of shape the political uh, scene in the so-called white working class. H- how do you conceptualize the role of racial prejudice in, in, in these developments? I mean, I think it's important to consider the role that race plays in the U.S. economy. 
um, and how racism in general can, um, how those two roles can support each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that race, race and the, the way the economy functions are deeply connected. Um, and to say that people uh, who are resentful or um, who show economic resentment, who feel as though they've been left behind by the economy, a lot of them are phrasing that in, in racial terms. Part of that has to do with how people understand the economy to function. Right, that there there is some group out there that is taking your stuff, and they don't deserve to have it. Um, and so it's how 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 people understand to express grievances. Um, and so is that racism? Yes, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways it right. is. Is it something that's common for everyone? Not necessarily. For a lot of people, it is. But to say that it's completely divorced from economics isn't really accurate. Right, that we should be thinking of those concepts as connected because they have been used in connected ways, right? That they're the way the economy functions is based on um, how we've classified race, how we've systematized racial prejudice, racial bias, um, and saying that people understand society in that way and understand the economy in that way is both racial and both related to uh, their understanding of, of economic security and economic uh, stability, or the way the system functions. Right, right. I mean, as, as a student of labor history, going back to like the immediate post uh, emancipation, emancipation, you know, patient phase and, and reconstruction and so on, and the great migrations that happened uh, from the South to the North, um, where, where uh, you know, African-Americans were desperately seeking employment and being excluded and discriminated against in, in the South for the overt, overt Jim Crow and just racialized terror. They headed north to the cities uh, seeking work and where they also faced a great deal of segregation and racial terror in, in various ways. Not to not to deny that at all. But I mean, you look, just the facts of the matter are is that the bosses often used racialized labor uh, in order to, to break unions, to, to bust strikes. Yes. They, they bust them in for scab labor. And so, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to say. It's, it's a risky position to stake out, uh, although it shouldn't be because you're just reciting history. But, but when the, the majority uh, white trade unions that comprised the early AFL, which, you know, they were it was a racist organization. They, for the most part, did not allow black workers into their ranks, which – you know, I don't know, by today's standards, it's not okay. It's a racist action. However, the fact is that the bosses would bus in non-union black labor uh, during uh, strikes, uh, AFL strikes. And so, you know, the the these, albeit racist, white uh, trade unionists uh, came to label black workers as a scab race, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that in, on, on its face is absurd and racist and, and offensive as hell. However, it has a history and its, it's, it's, its history is grounded and rooted in uh, racially, uh, you know, stratified, segmented, exclusionary uh, capitalist labor markets. And it seems to me that we're still dealing with this. You have a really great passage that sums this history up quite a bit. Uh, you write, feelings of economic loss are directed towards racial minorities or other group outsiders. But this expression is consistent with how the American economy has been structured. So tell us a little bit about the way that these capitalist labor markets are currently structured and how, you know, the various uh, union densities affect people's feelings of being sort of left out and left behind. Sure. I mean, so as we think about union decline, we're also thinking about the decline primarily of private sector unionism in favor of public sector unionism 
and where that's concentrated for the most part is in um, larger capitals or, or capitals, larger cities or larger municipalities. And, and it tends to be a different type of workforce, right? They're more professionalized. They're more diverse. They, they live in cities. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of that comes with prejudices that are directed towards the type of people who live in cities, which has to do with racial minorities. It has to do with women in the workforce. Um, it's different types of occupations than were previously uh, unionized, right? Because public sector unions didn't really take off in the U.S. until the, until the 70s, um, they didn't grow in, in density until about then, you see different patterns and so it becomes this moment of um, the the unions turn their back on us. They they turn their back in favor of these other people. They have these cushy office jobs. They don't work very hard. We work very hard. Um, and so it's it stratifies groups of people. And in some ways, uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with a preference on behalf of labor. Right? That in some ways. It's, it's a timing question and not necessarily a, a goal of, of labor itself. Um, and so it's trying to figure out how those groups were stratified. But it's about perceived economic per- success, right? That people see the economy as working for some people and not working for other people and how they believe that should work. Right. And so as, as we've discussed previously in people's conceptions of the so-called, you know, the, this this 80 uh, percent the, of the, the, the so-called middle class, uh, people's perceptions uh, of, of, of who's getting what and what they're getting is, is, is quite often not not very accurate. No, um, it's and, accurate it's, and, it's, and it's racially derived. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we understand deservingness, when we think about how people deserve whatever income they receive, whatever jobs they get versus how hard they work. We know that, uh, that, that many white people are less likely to perceive that racial and ethnic minorities are, um, are as deserving or they're working as hard. And so that feeds into our understanding of who deserves what in the economy, who's working hard at their jobs versus who has these benefits that they don't need. Um, are, are people in Wisconsin, a big conversation was whether or not people uh, state employees had this great healthcare system, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and whether or not they deserved it. The public, the public sector unions and their Cadillac pensions and all this exactly. kind of ways. That right? Do you deserve to have a pension, right. and you have to pay in it forever? And um, and I've always kind of greeted that point where you can't you can't fault people for not dying. Um, and so <laughs> there's uh, there's this question at the end of it where it's like, okay, they do have those things, um, and what do, what do you do? Right. I mean, I think it just, we just have to deal with, I mean, I'm just going to put it in my sort of blunt, sort of non-scholarly haphazard way here. So bear with me, but we just have to deal with the fact that like capitalism produces a war of, of each against all. Right. And, and there, these, there's these highly competitive and stratified labor markets and, and people's interests don't always neatly align. I mean, you, you, I was, I was talking about the way that the, these kind of racist, uh, stereotypes of black workers in in the late nineteenth and earliest uh, early twentieth century sort of emerged as the, the black race was the scab race, right? And now mm-hmm. maybe you might look at this as like sort of people from Central and South America are 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 you know sort of oftentimes used as scab labor 
in various senses and, and their, 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 you know, their gray area immigration status is oftentimes, as we know, wielded uh, by state and capital in order to, to achieve this, uh, you know, breaking unions and having cheap labor uh, sources and, and whatnot. But, but this is sort of, this is also the root of the kind of, um, the sort of uh, racial uplift, uh, uplift thesis of, of Booker T. Washington and so on, where, where it was the case that the you know they advocated for a, per, a paternalistic relationship between labor and capital to say like look these unions don't want you these unions are racist because many of them were mm-hmm. uh, you should cozy up to the bosses the bosses will take care of you right and so I mean I think you know you you have to look at the way that these sort of arguments emerge I think if we look at that as as leftists as people progressives people on the left socialists and we just sort of ignore it and we we just sort of promote this kind of romanticized understanding of all workers being you know inclined to this you know kind of uh, inchoate form of working class consciousness or whatever else we're really missing the way that uh, capitalist labor markets set various populations against one another yeah and i mean there's a huge power differential and so a lot of my work has to deal with the idea that organized labor is a particular type of organization one that um, has a complicated history, sure, but serves a particular role in uniting people on on purely economic grounds um, and pushing for economic goals in that way, in the workplace, in a way that can counter that of of management. And so it's a question of what happens as those types of organizations decline. Um, so, I mean, many union members today are non-white, they're women, they're more likely to be so than they ever have been throughout history. Um, and so it's understanding how that how those types of organizations can be used to to better inform working people and to um, and to to kind of push back against uh, what is a, a moneyed and powered arrangement that is potentially dangerous for people in the in the workplace. Um, so how do you build those organizations? in ways that make people better informed and better able to sort of take charge of their own lives. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well said. And I think that's a, that's a really important reframing because we need to get our, we need to sort of think our way out of this really stagnant and stale notion of the so-called white working class. Um, mm-hmm. As you rightly point, I think it's Adolf Reed and his sort of pithy formulation. He says, you know, the, which organization represents the most people of color in this country? It's, you know, it's the people think like the NAACP or, one of these other organizations, he says, no, it's the AFL-CIO, um, you know, and of course for all of its flaws, it's, you know, it needs to be turned in a more uh, pr- principled anti-racist and progressive direction. You know, it, it is, you know, it's objectively the, the representative of the most, uh, you know, people of color in, in the country. And um, of course the question of how we can turn that organization is a much more uh, profound and difficult question than we can answer today. But one of the things that you address directly is a very hot topic. Uh, you know, so the question on a lot of people's minds right now is given this so-called white working class is the way that we, they were decisive in 2016. A lot of people are making arguments that the, that the democratic party should turn in a certain kind of direction, a certain kind of orientation towards courting this so-called white working class. And and you argue that this argument, not only does it rely on a, a sort of phony romanticized notion of what the white working class is, but it also leaves out a great number of people who 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 aren't in the picture at all because because they didn't vote or we can't sort of track yeah. where their opinions sort of stand. So 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 give us a little summary of of those arguments and, and what your take might be on that. Sure. So I think 
political scientists are good and social scientists more generally are good at a lot of, we understand behavior pretty well. We're good at understanding behaviors, voting, uh, uh, going to the polls, talking to people. We're less good at understanding non-action, right? We're not as good at understanding people who don't vote, people who choose not to and why they choose not to. And we know that these people look differently in terms of what they believe than, than voters, right? They believe different things. They care about different things. And we also know people don't vote for a lot of, um, a lot of different reasons, but it's that they don't believe their, their vote matters or they don't believe that they need to or that government will listen to them in any way. And so when we consider what the Democratic Party should and shouldn't do, it's maybe not fair to talk about them courting people who already voted and who maybe aren't going to change their mind rather than talking about people who maybe voted in the past and left mm-hmm. um, or maybe people who voted, but they did so in a way that was sort of begrudging, right? That ultimately we make a yes or no decision with no degree of strength attached to it, right? You don't get to really vote for Donald Trump. You can only vote for him or not um, or not vote at all. And we also don't necessarily know uh, how many people wanted to vote and didn't because they either didn't make it to the polls or they thought something, you know, they didn't want to wait in line or they didn't think they needed to go that day or whatever. Um, And so what the Democratic Party strategy should be is heavily reliant on who the Democratic Party sees itself as becoming. And so if it's courting people based on some perceived notion of their racial preferences, that's going to look very different than if they assume that, um, you know, people, maybe people are, um, they're worried about whether their kids are going to have good jobs, which is not directly related to their financial well-being. They're worried about, uh, you know, sort of people withdrawing themselves from life in general, right? So they're worried about drug epidemics. They're worried about uh, non-work. They're worried about people not having stable jobs, right? All of that's not going to be directly tied into their own economic standing, but it's it's tied into perceptions of the economy that are unrelated to one's personal standing. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that's um, particularly relevant at the moment in light of the fact that the current generation of millennials who have sort of come of age in the last 10 years, um, if the current trajectory um, continues, it looks as if they're going to have significantly lower life outcomes Mm. on a range of economic indices than their parents did. So something like that sort of future-focused economic anxiety um, as opposed to simply like anxiety about one's own standing um, could place play a really significant role in shaping people's voting preferences so for instance like you know if you're a parent who you know has your like you own your own home and you know you've got a pension and all the rest but you know your kid has one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt and is currently working at the local starbucks um and things don't look like they're going to head upwards for them that could i imagine Influence your vote in ways that simply your own class doesn't. Sorry, that was really no, you, you, you want your kid to move out of your basement finally? You know what I mean. <laughs> right, or even that you want them to be in a, a stable job, like a career. And what we're doing more often is is kind of bopping around. I spent three years here and four years here and wherever. Um, and none of it paid well, exactly, but it yeah. all paid a little bit. But not enough that you feel as though you are putting into a pension and you'll be ready you know, to you're not retiring at 65. That's for sure. 
Right. I mean, uh, this, this really maps on to, you know, not to be too partisan here or kind of sound like a, a, a Bernie bro hack, but I mean, this is really what, what Bernie Sanders was talking about in his primary campaign about creating a, a political revolution. Right. I mean, at least in his, I mean, I think this is the most interesting part of the Bernie Sanders move, wave, I would say, because I mean, of course, you know, that that's going to be interpreted by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But I think as, as, as more sort of like uh, sophisticated lefties here, we can sort of interpret that as this kind of like insistence on a certain kind of emergence, right? That, that we can produce uh, emergent uh, dynamics within the, the voting population that weren't there previously, right? That we don't have to rely on existing behaviors. We can produce new ones by reframing the uh, argument and, and getting outside of the way that these sort of this, uh, this culture war, us versus them kind of mentality has really solidified within Democratic and Republican Party uh, processes to, to produce uh, more kind of working class uh, affinities rather than uh, lines of demarcation along ethnic and racial uh, you know, uh, and regional geographic lines that that, that these uh, Republican Democratic Party machines currently rely on so heavily. And I mean, there are reasons to be to be concerned, right? That that this is the first generation that is dying younger than their parents did. Um, that's that's a concerning outcome, right? That that we're seeing more. They're calling them deaths due to despair, right? They're they're deaths related to um, to diet, to exercise, to drug overdose, to suicide. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And so. That's concerning, right? That should be worrying for a democratic society. And so it's it's okay for parties to take that on in ways that are key to their message, central to what they're talking about. So you're saying Beyonce has a song coming out about that? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems like I mean you you cite a lot of uh, a lot of interviews with people that some of these uh, scholars that you're working with are, are looking into and, and perhaps you're you're doing some of your own research on this and a lot of the things that come up and I know this this jives well with what I know about the so-called white working class having grown up in a in a, in a rural setting is that they they'll, they'll consistently cite uh, you know like the NAACP for example mm-hmm. as like well, they have this kind of representation, right? And and, and they have, uh, I mean, one guy here in one of the literatures that you cited sort of uh, says, uh, there's the NAACP, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is like, what the hell? Anyway, and then he say, he asks the white guy, all he has is this little church. White people don't have the strength or support to accomplish anything. All the wealthy white people haven't done me any favors. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I think the easy thing to do there, and, and maybe we do have to do this just for 10 seconds to get it out of our systems, but like, give me a fucking break, right? <laughs> Come on, white man. Like, you don't have any representation in society. Give me a break. Okay. Now that we did that, all right, we, we can move on to the more social scientific approach. Sure. I mean, well, when you define whiteness as the absence of any identity, yeah, it makes people um, – feel as though they are voiceless. So they join groups which give them an identity. People like to feel like they belong. Um, the issue with a lot of um, white groups is that um, that identity is used in ways that are maybe antithetical to their um, class interests, that are maybe not um, good for society or used in ways that are you know, dangerous to other groups of people, right? They're not doing the same kind of function as other groups do. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that identity pitch is the whole Richard Spencer. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And that identity is very compelling for people who feel as though they don't have one um, because they've been the dominant yeah. group for so long. Yeah. I mean, this is really where class has to come in to, to, to sort of uh, even out this notion of identity and race. Because, I mean, what who are the types of people who sort of head up? And I definitely I do not want to levy a sort of, um, you know, 
homogenous, uh, you know, critique of the NAACP. First of all, I don't have the research in front of me. and I don't know the, the, the composition of it right now. But but historically, these are fairly elite institutions oftentimes that are driven by the interests of 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 the the well resourced w- among them right because this is the world we live in sure and so the kind of uh, advocacy that a lot of these groups produce are bent towards uh, at at the least what you might call upper middle uh, upper middle class interests um, and so the question then there is you know say like well it's not really correct actually to say that the NAACP really does represent the robust and vast interests of, of all uh, people of color. Um, no, but it's visible. And that's the, visible, and that's right. the issue with a lot of this is that um, people want to feel as though they belong to a group. They want to feel as though they belong to a community. They want to feel as though they're valued in society. Um, and when they don't, they've, do things that make themselves feel that way. The issue is, is that that can sometimes be a very bad thing. Um, they join groups that are not in relation to their interests. They're, they join groups that are um, that maybe emphasize parts of their identity that are uh, maybe not as desirable, right? So, so you're affiliating yourself with a group of people that really capitalize on your racial prejudice or your sexism or whatever. Um, but it's a group of people. It's a group of guys that you can talk to. Um, and they make you feel wanted and like you belong. And I mean, I think that's the role a lot of churches play as well, right? That that people go to churches to feel as though they belong to something bigger than themselves. Um, and that can have a religious affiliation, but it also has a community one where you go to feel as though you are a part of something. Um, and that means that you are able to be influenced by whatever is, conversations are happening around you. The issue is, is that if those aren't consistent with what you should be doing politically or, or what your politics, um, what would help you in your politics, you may value other parts of, of political life. Um, so you, you don't necessarily hear the class narrative as often. So you think you're of a different class than you are. You think your interests are different. You emphasize different parts of your own interests. Um, and it doesn't actually help your, your economic predicament in any way. You just, you know, you think it will because you're told it will and you you want to believe that because it makes you um, it makes life a little bit more livable. Right. The, the, the opiate of the masses at this point, you might say, or is a certain kind of um, like flattened uh, form of, of identity, um, you know, projection or whatever that doesn't really coordinate with people's real needs and interests in a sense, uh, now th- I think there is a far more robust notion of, of sort of um, identity that, that can be uh, wielded in certain directions. But, you know, it seems to me certainly for for the so-called white working class, identity is operating in a really um, malignant sort of way <laughs> for, for sure. I mean, there but, are segments of it for which it is right. There are segments. But that's I mean, people in general are trying to at least this is the kind of contention that I hold. People are trying to live their lives as best as they can. Um, the question is, is what do they think that means, right? They, they want their life to be good and they want their life to be, um, they want it to be better. But what they think is going to do that is very different across groups of people. 
Right. This is this is why I like to talk to empirically driven people because uh, you sort of take a ground level up approach as opposed to sort of projecting uh, these kind of abstract <laughs> abstract aims and interests onto large groups of people the way that we Marxists do. Sometimes I'm not saying that you're not one, but uh, you know what I mean. You, you know the kind of Marxist I'm talking about. Yeah, right? Where we I mean, project I, a certain I, uh... kind of class consciousness onto these groups before we even bother to ask them what they think about that. <laughs> well, it's, you might have more in common than you think you do, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. you never ask. So <laughs> yeah, never bothered asking. And, and uh, of course you're trying to get to the, the, the root of the pro- of society's problems. It's oftentimes going behind people's backs, right? Yeah. So I do acknowledge that there's a structural component there that we also need to look at, but, but the way that people conceptualize their lives, right. And as you, as you mentioned, their own v- conception of the good, Right, really matters in terms of how we think strategically, and so I want to sort of move into a kind of a put on, take off your scholar hat, and in, insofar as you know, we're we're able to do that, we're we're kind of broken in that way that we can't entirely do that, and put on your sort of like political commentator hat for the last uh, ten minutes or so here, and let's talk about some of the more political and strategic implications of this, if, if you don't mind. I mean, I think one of the things that we can at least say is that this this idea that unions. Um, are operate as a check on economic inequality that that's sort of entering the mainstream of the discussion right now. Uh, Thomas Piketty uh, sort of made that an okay topic to discuss as a serious mainstream policymaker, uh, you know, in his book, uh, capital. And uh, just uh, actually like a day ago or a day or two ago, uh, it was released by Princeton, which, you know, now 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 when Princeton, uh, you know, delivers a finding, then, you know, it's official. Uh, <laughs> the Princeton economists find that unions had historical role in helping address income inequality. And it's like, well, no shit. But but Princeton said it now. So it must be true. They they conclude that the rise in income inequality between skilled and unskilled workers since the 1970s might be due, at least in part, to a decline in union membership. Uh, you don't say. That's Henry Farber, professor of yeah. Water is wet. Yeah. So so I mean, what are some of the political implications there? Do you think that the left, the people, the way can people conceptualize trade unions and social justice and economic justice are are in step? Or I mean, it seems to me that you've taken on this as as an academic project because you think it has some kind of political salience. So just kind of you know harp on that, vamp on that speculate on, on that for us. What's the kind of role uh, of unions and how, how, do, how do people on the left need to think about them in terms of accomplishing a more robust kind of social justice agenda? Right. So I think it's, it, again, it's tricky to think of groups that are in decline or maybe uh, less so in decline some places than others. Um, and so I've done a lot of work at the state level um, to try to think about individual um, individual states and how their history with unionization matters over time. Um, and so unions matter everywhere, but they matter differently in different places. Um, and their decline is going to look a bit different in different places. So the it's kind of a 50-state strategy, which not to, to sort of borrow that, that line from sort of Republican strategists, but that it, it should look somewhat differently across groups um, because the industries are different, because um, the power is different, because of the, the inroads in state governments is going to look different. And so movements towards towards more labor power or towards um, towards more activism in those arenas should should look differently across places. So I have done some work looking at levels of economic inequality, right? So um, how how far the rich are from the um, the poor in terms of 
um, how how equal or unequal a society is based on on income. Um, and so unions at at this point are still very influential to um, to levels of economic inequality. So if we're concerned about inequalities rise, then we also really need to consider what declining union union membership means. Um, and as these laws are taken up in state governments, they don't appear to be random state governments. They tend to be state governments where unions as a, an interest were most embedded into sort of political arrangements. And so how do we understand the role that unions play in state governments, how the Democratic Party responds to unions is also going to be important here, right? Mm-hmm. Because some Democratic parties are very uh, in step with the wants of labor and others are less so, right? There's more variation here. Again, this is going to be because of geography and the historic sort of the rollout of unions in these places, right? The Southwest was always anti-union and that was a, a major um, part of its development. And so now talking about uh, the role unions play in a, a state like Arizona or a state like Nevada, it's going to look different and it's going to require different strategies and different tactics. Um, and I think a lot of labor leaders understand this, but maybe we as um, sort of general general interest people or scholars don't necessarily as much. So you're arguing for a more nuanced understanding of how labor unions sort of operate in a larger sort of political context in terms of our strategy, as opposed to just uh, assuming that, I mean, I think it, it is a really unfair standard, I think, that a lot of leftists sort of put place onto unions. I mean, because they, they look at unions as this kind of like uh, abstract instrument of the will of the working class. And then when actually existing unions fail to live up to that measure, then they're sort of, um, you know, uh, tossed aside. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, there's a huge power differential (laughs) and there's a real benefit to institutionalizing that power. So, I mean, there it comes with problems in a lot of ways, right, that institutionalized organizations have biases, right? They're they're um, they're they're bureaucracies. They're structured in ways that don't change quickly and don't change necessarily to all concerns. But their historic successes in some ways predict future successes, not always, but um, if we look at where where uh, labor is growing stronger, there needs to be that, or it tends to do better where that sort of consciousness of, of, of what labor does and what labor can do already exists, right? You have to, in order to do something, you have to believe you can. Yeah, I think the teachers' strikes recently have been really instructive in that sense, in that some of the most successful and most widespread ones were occurring in states that had a really long and rich labor history. Right. I mean, so Arizona is a bit different, but Wisconsin's, I know Wisconsin, I'm sorry, West Virginia's recent strike was successful and was perceived as successful very early on. And that is, that is useful, right? That is a thing that is good for building kind of momentum and good for understanding how the media covers these strikes. In general, people tend, people have found that people are uh, more antagonistic towards strikes. People don't like strikes. They, they block the roads. They don't, you know, they don't like to complain, whatever. But these have been portrayed as, as sort of a deserving strike. And I don't, more work needs to be done into looking at sort of deservingness of these strikers versus others. And so I'm doing some stuff going forward on how that varies based on occupational perception and uh, race and gender Right, that those those are going to influence who we believe to be deserving of the right to um, to strike, or whose strikes are are better 
Yeah. I think, I mean, that, I think that, that matters yeah, strategically. Yeah. You know, one of Jane, uh, Jane McAlevey's, um, labor historian strategist, uh, sort of points is that, you know, not, not all, you know, labor is not labor. There, there, there are strategic, you know, sort of in, inflection points or, or stress points or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it within, you know, any, any economic, any economy in certain sectors have more ability to change the, the, the larger sort of political uh, labor context than others. And so it seems to me that, that your research would be really important there and in, in thinking strategically about which strikes have the most, uh, you know, efficacy and, 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 uh, you know, um, beneficial outcomes in terms of uh, public, the way that people view, view them. Well, one of the, just more pragmatically, one of the, the having been on strike before in, in a union, I can tell you that, that, you know, there's a constant tension between sort of militant strike tactics. You know, do we, do we block the roads? Um, how antagonistic are we to the general public if they try to resist or, or break the strike? Um, those kinds of questions. And, you know, I, there's a, there are a lot of sort of platitudes that are thrown around like, no, we don't let anybody buy, you know, we're, we're here, we're, you know, they better get used to it and they're just scabs. And, and there's other people, you know, on the other side who say like, oh, but they're, everybody's going to hate us, you know, we can't win. So what if we win the strike and the public loathes us? You know, obviously, you know, both sides uh, have have some pitfalls there. But but I think empirically, it's important to 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 note that neither one of those sides have much evidence to back their claims. And I'm wondering, two questions, two-part question. A, is there any research about how militant strike tactics sort of impact overall outcomes? And and B, you know, how, how might you study that? Does that make sense in terms of yeah. like, is it actually worthwhile to engage in these militant strike actions? I mean, may, or, or are they undermined in the long term? Long term, are they kind of pyrrhic victories or, or perhaps not? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Is it worth studying? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I think some people have done some some great work that looks more historically at the right to strike and the tactics used in strikes. There's been some some very good work there. Uh, there's also been other uh, more detailed work on individual strikes at individual times. Um, so how we understand one strike as opposed to to um, to another one. Right. So kind of comparative picture. Yeah, there. more okay. comparative or more mm-hmm. uh, sort of qualitative deep deep dive into one, the, the outcomes of one strike, uh, where I've kind of tried to situate myself is more at sort of a, a meso level of analysis, right? That I'm, I think that these strikes can learn from each other and that we should be doing more comparative work that, um, that looks at strikes that are going on at similar time points, right? That aren't necessarily the long, long draw of understanding of strike history. Those are valuable and useful and worth doing, or individual strikes that are at the sort of micro level, how we understand one strike at one moment. And I think there needs to be more that compares across state outcomes uh, and tries to talk about trends. Because it's, to me, understanding Wisconsin in relation to Indiana, in relation to Ohio, is more interesting and more influential for the the labor movement more generally than understanding Wisconsin as a a separate case and then understanding Indiana as a separate case because right on. Yeah. they were talked about and the the process occurred as sort of a concerted act, right? The legislation, the model legislation that passed a lot of these laws came from the same groups of people, right? That they, they passed through legislatures in very similar ways. So we need to understand the tactics to, um, 
to dealing with that in similar ways, right? So there are going to be differences and those differences are useful, but there are points of comparison that need to be made. I'm so glad you raised the fact that so many of those laws were um, being churned out sort of by the the same, if not similar organisations. Like I know um, with certain pieces of ALEC legislation, um, there were times at which they didn't even properly update. Yeah the um, legislative drafting from state to state so they didn't inadvertently leave like some of the specifics yep. from Wisconsin on like the West Virginia legislation or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be and it was all just basically like pro forma stuff coming straight out of Alec. Yeah and it's I mean that's the great way to get legislation passed is that if you just write it yourself <laughs> it's very common right you just write the legislation yourself you yeah. send it to a legislator um, they they propose it. They make their own changes. They don't necessarily have to make any changes. Um, and then it's out there. Um, and so we need to understand yeah. ways in which those pieces of legislation were the same. And then other ways in which uh, they were very different, right? So when we think about um, passage of right to work in some of these places, some of them have different uh, contracting rules or, or particularly in, in public sector legislation, Um Some of them required that contracts be renegotiated every year. They had done that previously. Um, And so then the effects of right to work are going to look different in places that contract like that. So Wisconsin contracts, I believe, every year. But places like Michigan, and and this is in some ways against the sort of standard Michigan law. I saw a talk on this at one point. Um, People were setting contracts that extended into the future that were, you know, outside of the three-year, five-year contracting period. Um, and so if you extend those contracts longer, effects are going to look different in those states than in others. Um, so those comparison points show differences in power and are important to understanding um, sort of the, the institutional arrangements that were in place when these laws were created and the likely effects that they will have and for which groups of people. Um, right, right. But understanding that these laws are very similar shows that there is some degree of, of of powerful lobby that is influential cross-state, right? It's not that they just have an in in Wisconsin. Yeah. It's that they have an in in a lot of places. And it's which types of um, state representatives or state senators are, are making these proposals. Are they coming from governors? Are they, um, you know, just kind of shooting up full form? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing I was ultimately going to say is like... The thing is, um, labor most certainly needs to be keeping an eye on that particular process because we know that that capital is across mm-hmm. states. So it would be just a huge mistake for individual labor movements in individual states to be thinking about these in kind of an atomized fashion because the people orchestrating it at mm-hmm. the top mm-hmm. right. are absolutely watching that particular pattern across states. And that's the state level is an important level, right? That focusing on national labor law um, can be can be influential if it can pass there, but a lot of it hasn't, right? Because of the way federalism has worked in the yeah. states, a lot of labor law is is enacted at the state level. So thinking about a network of states rather than your individual state becomes really crucial to understanding um, sort of how how people grow, move, growing forward, going forward, not growing forward. Right. So this, this really takes us, this is going to bring us home here because we're, we're, we're over an hour. We need to wrap this up and send you along your merry way. <laughs> You've been very generous with your time so far. So let's, let's, let's ask the difficult questions to wrap up here. This is going to require you to put on 
uh, your your scholar hat as well as your sort of like political organizer activist hats. Okay, it's a lot um, of hats. It, we're we're wearing hats today, lots of them. <laughs> Taking them off, putting them on. Uh, <laughs> like the mad hat on. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it. So, I mean, given that, I think this is really important. It's something that I'm actually, you know, this is one of my hobby horses. Now, we haven't been in my wheelhouse uh, up until now. I don't, I don't do numbers or statistics. Uh, I, I, I don't know even how to read a, a chart at this point. Uh, I can teach you how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about like statistical <laughs> regressions, like my eyes cross immediately. Anyway, I'm highly qualitative. Uh, I get people like you to do the quantitative stuff. And I just, I just believe you. That's because that's how scholarship is supposed yeah, to dangerous. function. Right? Don't, I mean, believe me, but don't necessarily believe everyone. <laughs> Trust and faith. <laughs> this is how we get people turning to Nate Silver for political <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to be said about that. But but I think we're we're going in a really important direction here, which is to say that you know one of the things that I'm I'm concerned about in our, our particular political moment is that as inspiring as it is with all of the teacher strikes, with uh, you know socialist organizations, left wing groups uh, are cropping up everywhere from DSA chapters who have had wild successes in, in your neck of the woods in Pennsylvania, uh, with you know in the electoral arena, uh, both in state down ballot sort of uh, in in other sorts of races. Um. And in our revolution, you know, having various electoral and, and, and policy successes and, and other groups across the country that aren't affiliated with either one of those is that it has an intensely local um, – it has an intensely local, uh, you know, uh, lens in terms of how it approaches politics. And what you're pointing to and what Amy just rightly pointed to is that, you know, a lot of this needs to have a certain kind of um, – um, at the least regional and national uh, coordination – uh, to 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 accomplish some of these changes and reforms in political, uh, you know, uh, political, you know, forms of organization. Based on your research, throw out a handful of political aims and goals and strat sort of strategic orientations that the, the left should aim for to rectify this uh, this you know this diminishment of of, of labor density and the, the rise of economic inequality that derives from it. Okay. I mean, I think that a lot of this is happening is happening right now at the state level. So there are questions about could it be happening more? So I do think that a lot of new organizing is happening, um, but it's tending to be more successful in places where where unions have already had that strength. So it's about building understanding, using mo- uh, movements that are happening as they're ongoing to sort of better to better inform people, to get people more involved about um benefits that can that are possible and that can come to them and that they they deserve to have um but i also think it's an understanding um and sort of resisting the idea the idea that uh working arrangements that are exploitive are just something we have to do for just now um and thinking and having people think about themselves as as workers with interests that can um can be understood right so we're seeing uh, academics across college campuses, so adjuncts and graduate students and other groups of people start to organize themselves as though they're workers, which is a big a big step um, for groups of people who have been trained to think of themselves as professionals, um, right? That we are are an elite class of people, um, and so going forward, that that's an interesting moment to get people to recognize that. Uh, institutional arrangements can change what are objectively very bad situations. Um, right, right. And so how to, to move going forward there. 
I'd also say that paying attention to state laws and to small laws, what seem like what seem like small changes in employee employer relations. So so whether it be um, sort of wage theft or whether it be laws to prevent those kinds of uh, pieces of legislation, labor has been very active in them, but they're not particularly salient policies that that people necessarily know a ton about or hear a ton about, right? A lot of people have worked as waitresses and you have to come in and clean the tables before a shift starts, right? That's a, that's a pretty common way to steal a little bit of money from a lot of people. Um, but it's not a very common thing that, that, that on a mass level that we understand. And it's about perceiving how these strikes are going, right? That, that actions seem to be working and that there, there are choices that are made by state governments that could be made differently, right? That the, the perception is, is that there's either we make cuts to the pension pension system or we uh, go bankrupt as a state. Um, and that's an unfair choice in a lot of ways. I'm not an expert in state budgeting, um, but rarely are the choices between two options, both of which are very bad. <laughs> that's a um, safe bet. Yeah, that's a safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it um, seems to me that you're pointing to some of the dynamics, uh, that, that the, the transformations in the way that labor labor unions sort of do their business. And, 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 so, and you're, you, you rightly point to the fact that, you know, uh, wage theft has been an ongoing sort of battle for a lot of labor unions. But the way that they have waged this battle – uh, is looks like a, a handful of lawyers, uh, yeah. you know, working to litigate grievances and, and backroom dealings, uh, you know, with employers and at the state level. Uh, whereas what you're advocating and what we're seeing here is a trend towards politicizing uh, these these policies and these these demands in a way that the the bureaucratization and the the, law, the lawyerization of of mm-hmm. uh, trade union, uh, you know, uh, organizing has, has taken over the past uh, several decades. I mean, so, so others, other people have politicized it, but in different ways, right? The idea that, that, um, that service workers are primarily children is something that that's, that's coming out of sort of this cultural consciousness of our understanding of what it means to be a, um, you know, say a fast food worker, for example, right. And, and sort of countering that with, what things actually are is beneficial and it's useful to understanding how um, how we understand problems, right? That the general public has done a fairly good job at supporting people telling their stories and um, sort of pushing for, for more from government. It's maybe not enough. It's maybe not uh, um, all of the way there, but it is a strategy and it is more public. So the, the strategy with, with lawyers has been, been um it can be effective it's been uh useful in in cases it was more useful historically i think um but in some ways it um it tries to put labor on the same field as many uh many companies and the money levels between the two are not the same um and so labor's greatest resource for for since its founding has always been its membership right that it has more people and so how do you build those people up to understand that they're kind of more powerful rather than just have them be kind of generally supportive, but relatively absent. 
All right. So um, this has been really informative for me. Again, you know, as I mentioned, I, I'm not a quantitatively oriented person, and it's really good to get somebody in here who can provide some real uh, empirical, uh, uh, you know, uh, empirical evidence to the, to the sort of more theoretical strategic scaffolding that we try to produce on Dead Punnett Society. Uh, really enjoyed this a lot. People should check out her articles. I'm going to link to those in the show notes. Most of them are probably behind academic paywalls, but we'll try to get as many of the, uh, those available to people uh, as we can who are, who are looking at some of the evidence here. I think, you know, people on the left sort of know that, hey, unions are actually good, but but we need to have the arguments under our belt as, as to why uh, in order to sell, sell these arguments to people and counter some of the uh, prevailing anti-union sentiment that, that's bandied about uh, today. So, Laura Bucci, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks, Laura. And that concludes our interview portion of this week's episode with Laura Bucci. Thanks again to Laura for joining us on the show. Um, She's a serious political scientist. Um, I am not. Um, I'm a dead pundit, so I, I like to bring. <laughs> You're a clown. I'm a clown. I like to bring You're her on clown, the show folks. to uh, to make more serious, uh, uh, you know, um, reputable remarks about social science and empirical data and all Unlike the rest of it. Disreputable. Unlike my disreputable Gibberish. quotes, I, I sort of I, I sort of misspoke uh, during the interview, and I, 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 if you're not careful, you would think that I said something to the effect of, "Well, you know, statistics they can say whatever the hell you want them to say," and that's not that she kind of responded appropriately. She's like, "Oh, actually, no, you can't do that." That's not it's really what Adam, I meant. Adam doesn't know how to add up. It's a real problem. I can't add and subtract. So statistics mean nothing to me. What I was trying to say was that uh, statistics aren't going to show you something that you don't go in looking for. Adam, Adam, stop digging. They might not show you Adam, what you go digging. looking for. Stop and I think that was digging. her point. It was, it was a really digging, important bro. point. <laughs> Just let me do this. Just let me do this. My point was, her point was mate. to say, her point was to say, yes, if you go into a data set looking for something, you're definitely not guaranteed to find it. And that point was very well taken. It's an important point. My point was to say, if you don't even go into a data set, if you're not even looking for something, then you're definitely not going to find it. It was a much more banal point, I think, than, uh, than the way it came out. But it's really great to have somebody on who's a very serious social scientist who can who can crunch these numbers and give us like you know um give us irrefutable give us evidence for the rightness of our cause you know what i mean unions are great people they they decrease social inequality and we have to fight for them relentlessly particularly in the wake of janice we're gonna have to bring back the strike and other militant potentially illegal strike tactics and uh, i'm all about that let's fucking, fucking do it, strike man. janice across the face Right. Fuck Mark Janice. Can we just can we can some? I'm not really about like these ultra left like you know sloganeerings that are just solely about Mark Janice. What a yeah, but that, that's a political statement. That's not like a personal virtue signal. That's just a that's like a political fuck him. Fuck him. Everyone like him. Can you even imagine being that much of a selfish little gormless little worm that you're like I don't want to have to pay my contribution. Yeah. Right. Fuck you, right. you love. I mean, one thing that one thing that you know um, that like the people like um, he's five Jane minutes McAlevey. away from retirement anyway. Yeah, he is. But also, is. let's face facts: it's not about him. There were people mining for someone just like him to bring this type of case, right? Like, of course, of he course. was well, that's, totally that's fungible. Why. You know, like, that's why it happened. They're still just looking for people. Fuck Mark Janus, but. Yeah. There, right, so if what, it wasn't Mark Janus, it would have been another Mark Janus, you know. Right. I mean, what's important to say here is that is that like 
there have Jay McAlevey's made this point over and over and over again. There have been over the years, um, there have been a number of rulings that have prevented unions from taking their members' dues, which in closed shop environments, rest in peace, closed shop. <laughs> in formerly closed shop environments, uh, you had to pay dues in order to prevent the free rider problem because you had access to all of the benefits that all of your other union brothers and sisters did, whether or not you wanted to have them, whether or not you were a fucking troglodyte like Mark Janis. So, but what they did though, they segmented the 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 money, the the budgets. Uh, they put a lot of restraints on the budgets of these unions to prevent people's dues. From going to say like political uh, campaign contributions, I so they had to you're say like okay, about the your Abood case in seventy. Yes, the Abood case, the yeah. Abood case in seventy so was very Janice very. So Janice overturned uh, that. Yeah, and so previously, yeah. the point being is that like what what a guy like Mark Janice is crying about is saying like, well, I don't want my dues to go funding these Democrats. Well, they weren't. Wait, they fucking that's not weren't. what Janice was whining about. Janice was whining about paying any fees at all. Well, yeah, I'm saying, but that, but that's the political rationale, right? The political rationale is to say, like, why should you force me to put money in the Democratic Party coffers? Like, this is not a partisan exactly. thing. Not, okay, okay, you're being a legal pedant again. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that yeah, was like that was not in about the ruling. A fucking Supreme Court case dipshit. That was not in the ruling. It was not part of the language. But, but folks, the this is where I get really, really, really bossy and really, pedantic. really hair splitty. The word you're looking for is pedantic. It's called accuracy, folks. You're not wrong. I'm not suggesting that it was in the ruling that it was about political (laughs) contributions. Tell me I'm not wrong. I'm aware. Read Bruce Rauner's statement. This this fuckwit from, you know, the governor of Illinois who's been pushing for this. He traveled to Washington, D.C. in advance of the decision to be ready to like, you know, spike the football. He would have been in the back of the courtroom just like beating off. Yeah, he's such a jerk. Anyways, but the way he framed it, like he went in front of the cameras immediately and said, you know, something to the effect of like, you know, well, fuck Trump tweeted this. Trump tweeted this like uh, just like a several hours ago that like this will prevent, you know, the Democratic Party from collecting money from, you know, from from basically like captives like, um, you know. Mark Janice. But that was already impossible. So that was it was. Stupid. It just goes to but show. The way, like, you know, the way it was framed be as damned. A, the way it was framed as a First Amendment case in the Janice situation was not that he was concerned about it about his union membership fees going towards Democratic Party causes or explicitly political orientation. It mm. was the idea that being compelled to pay that was a form of compelled speech. Right. So um, someone like Wendy Brown has looked quite extensively at the ways in which um, uh, constitutional rights have been um, totally leveraged and um, weaponized through the courts under, like, in the neoliberal period. Like, corporations have sought to utilize and wield those constitutional rights in ways that were never before seen. So, like, the series, like, the the rights within um, the constitution where previously they would be utilized to, you know, facilitate a more egalitarian society um, for citizens. Um, They've been kind of weaponized and reappropriated in quite bastardized ways. And this is, I think a prime example of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's, I mean, I mean, you're, you're, you're the legal pedant in the, in the house, 
you're the in-house legal expert for the society. <laughs> but for me, like, I just, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I, as you know, like we talk about this, you know, extensively almost every day we argue about this, but like, I just, I just, I, 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 I cringe. I balk at the, the legal formalism of, of all of this, because when you talk, when you're taught, when you're Bitch, telling you me that, sound that like this Dave is, Rubin. <laughs> don't, don't you ever compare me to Dave Rubin, you son of a bitch. Well, stop being so dumb about legal rules. Like, oh, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty no, of this but, stuff. But hear me the out, though. Hear me out. You're not wrong, but there's another side. And to me, like, I'm how can wrong. you say Enough that this that. is? How can you suggest? <laughs> how can you suggest that it's compelled speech if the point is it, like the speech wait, is then therefore political, which is what is we're speech, trying bitch, to prevent people to from united. Right, but we're trying to. Com- we're trying to prevent compelled speech, but speech for what purpose? Speech to compel me to support certain political agendas that I don't support. That's the entailment, right? Like it's no, implied. No, it's not because technically it has no, to be implied. It's, I don't, it's not implied in the legal formalistic sense, but it has to be in implied the, in terms like, of like just being like judgment. an actionable as being an actionable thing in the world. Ugh. In order for that to make sense, Ugh. Ugh. speech. The reason why, I mean, if we can go back to like the framers, the fathers of the Constitution, and it's like the reason why you want to protect speech is very weird. The reason why you want to protect speech around those dead motherfucking slave holding wankers. I know. Hence the the sarcasm. But let me finish. The point of protecting speech in the first place is so that you can utilize your speech for whatever cause and, and, and aims you want and as as we are mm. political creatures wait, you know what? going back to aristotle for fuck's sake but wait you just added values that are not there but to act but that's the legal formalism i'm talking about that drives me fucking crazy just because you say that the values aren't there in the legal apparatus doesn't mean they don't exist in broader society in the context that law functions so we are all political okay, beings fine but like speech the way, therefore what you read is going to be it's going to be different than the next guy so all we can pay attention to is the actual facts and not like sure, sure. the normative fucking narrative you tell yourself as to why they put that there that's fucking meaningless when it comes to the law itself. No offense. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm in agreement in terms of that with, with respect to that. But I, all I'm just trying to go back is just to circle back completely to my main argument is to say that I just think it's very disingenuous to say that this was purely a free speech case. And this doesn't have to do with compelling Wait, what speech do you mean? to like for political parties. No, because technically that was already disallowed. Technically. Technically. And I think technically we're going to fucking lose every time. And I worry if <laughs> I just worry they're like, I mean, Hey, it's not like we're just making this up as we go. Like this, this goes back to like our first major episode of season two, like with Richard T Ford, you know, we're talking about the fact that like this anti-discrimination, like, you know, legal apparatus of sure. around civil rights and human rights is just so fucking limited. And if we only rely on this to well, I mean, advance this our political platform and program, like we're, we're screwed. We're screwed. Sure. But th- I mean, this yeah. isn't, so- sorry, I'm getting pedanty again. I'm going to let it again. go. No, you're, you're not wrong, <laughs> but what I'm saying, hey, let's, let's go back. Let's get to the real meat of the argument here, right? The, let's, who am I? What, who am I? I'm shadow boxing. Argument? I don't even know what I'm what shadow boxing right now. So let me be, let me, let me stop shadow boxing. Just so stories around the law and I'm just saying like, here's what the judgment no. said. You can tell yourself you're just so story all you want, but like. Let me be clear about who I'm shadow boxing with. I'm shadow boxing with the people like, uh, you know, who, who are like filleting Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. And they're like, they're, they're, they have this, this, this utterly 
like wrongheaded and ridiculous romanticized notion about what the Supreme Court can and can't deliver and how we how we how we change society. Right. Um, I mean, anyone who 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 doesn't have like a retire bench like added to <laughs> see what I did there. A little little pun. Uh retire bench, uh, RBG, like, you know, platform is just completely just drunk on the Kool-Aid. I mean, Wait, what? the fact that she, the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not retire in the middle of the Obama administration is just like a travesty for, for, for future, uh, legal rulings. And like, True. we're not going to over, we're not going to, we need to look forward, not backwards. And so anyone who has healthy young blood, we're going to start a blood drive. We're going to get a blood bank going. You're going to Peter Teal the shit out of it and make sure that old crypt keeper just <laughs> fucking hangs around long enough. Uh, so I can't say, I can't use my retire bench joke. That's not no. a, something that's not something it's that the I It's the antithesis use. of what we want. Okay. Should have been saying right. that back in like 2011 before yeah. the house well, flipped. I was, no one was listening to me. I was just podcasting in my bathroom alone without a microphone. That's anyway. not podcasting. That's telling yourself a soliloquy in the mirror. In my mind, it was. All right, well, let's 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 wrap this up. We had, we had a great episode. We're cut. We're cutting to the two hour mark for God's sake by now. So we need to wrap this up and give give these people uh, their days back. Um, if for anyone who's still listening, hey, thanks for for listening. And uh, if you are and you're not a patron already of the show, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash the subscribe button. Most importantly, though, share the crap out of this. We really do need you all to spread the word on Twitter, on social media, Facebook, via email and your list serves. Uh, tell, tell people in your DSA group or in who is this guy? List serves still exist like in the in, academic stuck in, universe. Stuck in fucking Netroots Nation era. <laughs> if, you're on, um, if you're on Comcast, you know, if you're a part of a Comcast community. Blogging or, is the um, way of the future, bitches. Not no fuck not Get Comcast. God, what what was the uh, uh CompuServe? AOL? Yes, CompuServe. Gosh. If you're in a CompuServe right. uh, community or an AOL uh, chat room, uh, spread spread the word. Yeah. Anyway, share the crap out of us. Rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars and tell people why you like us. And, Just be uh, a hype yeah. man on Twitter is what he's getting at. Yeah, hype hype the crap give out some, of us. Give us some love, baby. Anyway, we join the Patreon. You're going to get a B-side in the next couple of days. Amy and I are going to be chopping it up more about Janice. We're going to be talking about the exciting primary victories. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, just uh, you know, swept it up and uh, beat a, a real Democratic Party machine, uh, the Democratic Party machine perhaps in the entire country and really kind of paved the way forward. And I think like we're still kind of reeling from that and thinking through the implications of what that means for our strategy going forward. But I honestly, Hey, this might sound self-serving, but all I can say about that is bitches, we told you so like there, there is an inside outside strategy that is ripe for the picking. And no, this is not like vulgar, stupid electoral. This is not dumb, dumb electoralism. It's a much more rooted strategy where you're talking about taking power inside the state via an outside the state approach and, and building mass power in the institutions, in society, and uh, uh, you know, rocking that he- he- you know counter hegemonic uh, you know politics that, that that you know we need in. in to, to develop a robust democratic socialist movement and, and you're seeing it here so it's really exciting we're, we're going to chop that up in the b-side along with many many other things so don't miss that join the patreon and uh, we'll see you all over there in a couple of days so uh signing off dead pundits out bye oh this you crazy mother <laughs>